Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Calm Versations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Adam Coleman, who's the author of Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. In this conversation, we talk about his experience with growing up with an absent father, growing up absent of a father, and how that shaped his life, how he thinks that shapes, uh, largely speaking, the black American community as one of the vectors of instability within that community. And we also talk about his challenging of the black victim narrative that seems to be at the fore of certain social movements that seek to promote restoration and this concept of equity. Uh, So we try to talk about the problems and also try to talk about the solutions. He's a great guy. Uh, I had a good time speaking with him. So without further ado, here is Adam Coleman. Where, where should we start? Where did you start? <laughs> All right. So um, what, what got me started was uh, actually George Floyd uh, and the narrative surrounding George Floyd. Um, you know, I had always had like an interest in writing. I've been wanting to write a book for maybe like two or so years, but I just didn't have, a, you know, the right topic to write a book about. So uh, once George Floyd came about that was that was something that really got me moving got uh, got under my skin but you know from the other perspective not the perspective that most people believed in because let's say even if that scenario is 100% with the media states the the idea that there's a greater narrative that someone like myself is in constant danger in America is a very toxic and dangerous message to to deliver to people, whether they're black or they're white or, or any other ethnicity, uh, you know, because that message tells someone like you who is not black that you should either be worried for me or, you know, you should feel some sort of pity for me because I must be in danger. You must become this advocate for someone like myself. And then that message also tells me that I should be paranoid. I should constantly look around my shoulder. I should, uh, you know, shake and shiver when I do get pulled over by the police, even if it's legitimate. So it's that whole idea that the, a greater narrative that I should be some sort of American victim rather than just looking at these incidents as what they truly are, very isolated incidents. Whether the cop is in the wrong or he's not, you know, we should examine it for what it is rather than trying to extrapolate it into some greater American, you know, problem. Uh, you know, just like the Chauvin trial is supposed to be the trial of America. When in, in reality it was a it's a very nuanced incident, and you can understand how it's very complex. It's not black and white, um, and especially when you start to see the uh, the body cam footage and everything that comes out from it, you kind of see like 
this isn't what I was initially told. Um, and when you get just that frame of a knee on, on George Floyd's neck, that kind of paints one singular picture. But when you take a look at everything, you see the, the police officers trying to work with them. You see the, the behavior of George Floyd. You know, everyone should be held accountable. You know, police officers have a higher authority. They're held to a certain level. And I understand that. But to completely remove the agency of George Floyd, you know, there are a multitude of decisions that were made before he ended up on that ground. And even the fact that he was on that ground was his making. You know, he asked to be placed on that ground. How the cops handled it afterwards is questionable. But it, it just goes to show that everybody makes decisions in their life. Uh, some of us make terrible decision after terrible decision. Some of us make uh, really good decisions. But that is our, that's our power to do so. You know, some of us makes mixed decisions too. Don't right. worry about the, the mixed people. Absolutely. You know, I'm not perfect either. I've made tons of mistakes and I, and I write about that within my book. Um, but I would hate for someone to take that agency from me and make excuses for me when I don't deserve any excuses. I made a mistake. Now let me take that power back and make a change for myself. Um, and what I'm seeing a lot is a robbing of agency, especially for black people, this, this idea that, um, you know, the, the actions of a single person is because of a greater system in every which way possible. Um, that to me is like saying, well, don't worry, it's not your fault even though you're the one who opens your mouth and makes all these decisions or your actions are, are being uh, displayed, you know, for the world to see, it doesn't matter because it's a system. The system put you in this place. And, you know, I put in the book, did the white man put a gun in a black man's hand? No. These are conscious decisions that are being made, and yet we are making excuses for people uh, on the premise because they are black. Um, and we are what I call conflating black criminal issues as being black issues. So, you know, we can go down the list of all these different people who are resisting arrest, fighting with the police, putting themselves in, in, in crazy predicaments. These, these guys, for the most part, have long criminal history. And it's not to say that they deserve to die or they deserve to, uh, you know, they deserve to die at the hands of the police. But it's to say that they ended up in that scenario because of their history, because of their behavior. Mm -hmm. And when they come out and say Black Lives Matter for the criminals and say nothing for the innocent people that suffer by the hands of these urban terrorists, then to me, there's something wrong there. I saw this um, disturbing thread I can't remember the, the author of it, but on Twitter, mm -hmm. compiling all the children murdered this year by gun violence and right. uh, that are mostly black that are not being spoken about at all. So the mm -hmm. narrative uh, is 
Why, why do you think it's so attractive, this particular victimization of the, uh, well, victimization first and foremost of the black mm -hmm. population of America, and then secondly, the conflating of black criminality as representative or the treatment of black criminals as representative of the entire black community in America? Well, so there's there's a bunch of different places. So if we start with the media, because the media spreads the message, you know, without the media, I wouldn't know who George Floyd was. Let's just be honest. So the media is looking for a particular sensational narrative. They're always looking for that. The, the thing is that these particular situations are actually very rare. So when they do occur, they stick out and then they're they're on it, you know, like uh, like leeches. So once that situation occurs, it doesn't matter how it even happened, how it started, who the person is, none of that matters. What matters is the narrative that they create. And overwhelmingly, the people that end up in these situations that we know their names about, overwhelmingly, they have criminal history. And the reason being is because these scenarios, and this is actually a really positive thing, these particular scenarios are only happening to people who are committing crimes. So that means that the narrative that the average black person is in danger is not a true narrative. The narrative that black criminals are in danger is actually correct. Okay. And so when you, when you conflate the two and you remove the criminal part and just highlight the black, I mean, that's ultimately what you get. If you don't open up, you know, the, the meat of it, you miss out on what is actually filling that narrative up. Hmm. And, you know, there is something purposely done when you hide facts. Like, so for example, I, I like the, the Jacob Blake example, the initial narrative that he was there to break up a fight uh, and that they shot him getting in, into his own car, which that narrative itself is completely false. And it only took about 24, 48 hours to figure that out. And so here we are, we have the WNBA wearing his name when he was someone who had sexually assaulted, or I should say allegedly, I don't know if the case is finished, but allegedly had sexually assaulted a woman, came back and did it again. And here is the WNBA completely ignores that fact, where's his name and protest, uh, because they believe in a greater narrative that Men like Jacob Blake are the ones who are in danger, meaning we're all in danger, when in reality, they're sticking up for someone that should not be stick, uh, we should not be sticking up for. You know, there is no other race in America, and I would venture to say in most cultures, where they stick up for the people who are breaking laws, who are bad for the culture. But in America, we are so desperate to feel like victims that we don't care the character of said victim. And the character matters. You know, Martin Luther King said to judge by character, not by yeah. the, my race. And we are doing the complete opposite, even though people want to constantly bring up his name. They don't follow what he actually was saying. You said that in America, we are desperate uh, to become victims or desperate for victimhood. And it's kind of obvious why, because somehow at some point in time, that became the currency of social status in a way. Absolutely. But when you say we you also, I think you're talking about, first and foremost, the black community in America and a mm -hmm. lot of other marginalized so-called communities kind of follow in the footsteps of the black America uh, 
because of the civil rights movement, because black Americans, at least African descendants of slaves, were Mm -hmm. their culture was absolutely stripped from them. Uh, They are the immigrants to this world that came with no, which were stripped of of their family bonds, their bonds to culture, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then oppressed and then suppressed over multiple centuries. So there is actual, you know, historical narrative that's impinging upon the struggle for some sort of parody, some sort Mm -hmm. of, I guess, justice is the word that people use for the black community. And I think that maybe a mixture of optimist skeptic kind of translation of why Black Lives Matter as a movement is focusing on black criminals and lifting them up is because that's the easiest way to get their foot in their door and then work on these smaller issues like income inequality, perhaps generational wealth, perhaps reparations, and then something to do with uh, maybe outcomes in schooling of mm-hmm. something. So there's this whole package of issues that are you know kind of hidden behind this weird marketing uh, angle of lifting yeah. up the, the criminal. So there could be good that's happening uh, behind or in the wake of this odd PR move of uplifting the criminal. But what you're pointing out is that there, there's a lot of problems in, in that PR move, I guess. Well, even if, even if that's the case, even if that's the PR move, the problem is that the the issue of black criminals being killed because of their own decision making is at the bottom of the list of the issues that are happening within the black community. There are far greater issues. And it sounds taboo to say, but the number one issue in my head and and just looking off of, uh, you know, behavior of people and childhood development has to do with missing black fathers. And, you know, throughout the book, I talk about my personal story, my personal struggles, and I know I'm not alone. Um, the issue of missing fathers within the black community has a rippling effect throughout. You know, if, even if we were to talk about the the black criminal behavior, we know that you know black people are 13 percent of the population. Black men are about six percent of the American population. And obviously not all black men are committing crimes. So we have nearly half the violent crimes being committed by an extreme minority of the black community. That says that there's something wrong. There's something alarmingly incorrect that's happening. And there's a normalization of the missing father. And and it's not just black community, but the black community is the worst by far statistically. It's happening for all demographics, including the white demographic. I think uh, white community is about or uh, 25% um, uh, for single parent homes, uh, which means the mother isn't in charge of the the household. Um, you know, I have a son out of wedlock, but I try my best to make up for that particular situation because I don't want what my uh, my situation was as a kid. You know, my father, I barely saw him. You know, he he might have come around once or twice a year. I might have get one or, one or two phone calls. But essentially, my father was a stranger to me. I didn't learn the essential uh, benefits of being masculine. I didn't learn the steps of being secure throughout my life. You know, I suffered because of it. You know, I've, I've had to go to therapy and figure out why am I depressed? Why do I feel lost? Why do I feel directionless? And, you know, today I'm doing fine. 
but I'm also 36 years old. And I can say that I probably got my stuff together within a matter of a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, it, and some of us never do. So it's that, um, it's that extreme setting back for a lot of men. Um, and, it, and it also, I, in the book, I detail how it affects the women as well. You know, they, there is a lower look on how men are impactful for women and how the union of men and women regardless of race is extremely important the problem is and and i associate fatherhood and feminism uh, is one of the chapters because the feminist ideology is within the black community and that that belief that the black woman is better um, you know the narrative that her body is absolutely perfect the way it is. You know, black women have the highest obesity rate in the United States. Um, they also have the highest uh, diabetes rate. So they're they are incredibly unhelpful, uh, unhealthy, and it, and the feminist ideology is incre- incredibly unhelpful to push towards them. You know, it's like seeing someone who has cancer and saying, "Don't worry, keep smoking that cigarette." There's something very diabolical when it comes to that particular messaging that you put towards this demographic that you know is hurting. And so when I mention these numbers, it's not to chastise, but it's to say, hey, there's an issue here. There's an issue here when the feminists have controlled the dialogue within the black community. And maybe you can be more aware of it now, but you'll start to see anytime there's some sort of narrative and they want to get black people involved, they usually uplift a black woman so anytime they want to get people out in the streets and protest they show the degradation of the black male so these black criminals that we're out here crying for they're men you know the only person i could think of brianna for the most right that and that's that's an outlier right that and that's very new that's an outlier in that situation Hmm. but you know, there there is something to be said about that particular man to woman dynamic within the black community, and that's missing. You know, I see a lot of women, a lot of black women who are growing old alone. Um, they they don't care for the opinion of men. They want nothing to do with men. They feel that their life of independence is far greater, and they don't even see the the necessity of the of uh, a male authority within the family structure as as any sort of necessity and i know that other people talk about how they replace the government with fathers um it's kind of true in some way or at least the idea even if they're not doing it they always have the backup of the government to supplement what they think that the male is actually there for and that's to be a financial provider. So if I can have a child out of wedlock and all I want is a child, I don't really care about having a husband or a man around, but I can garnish his wages. I can go to the government to to take the money from him to provide help to provide the lifestyle that I want on top of my income. That is the government interference that's that's constantly happening for a lot of people, including black people and black households. So in your own story, what were your options then without, without a father uh, to regulate your behavior? How did you end up dysregulating your behavior? Sounds like you're rather introverted. Uh, 
Yeah. That's what I'm perceiving, but maybe you had a breaking inward at some point. I don't know. But how, how does your path go in, in, your, in the arc of your development? So um, I think naturally I was always shy. I was always pretty reserved. So, But that, I think that was just my behavior in general. Um, you know, there was a lot of... There was a lot of turmoil for me as a kid. Nothing, nothing extreme, like as far as like abuse or anything like that. But you know, we were homeless a couple of times. We moved a lot, mm. um, and and even into adulthood, I, I moved a lot. There was a period of time in my twenties where I was moving basically every year. Um, you know, st- st- for various reasons. Some some of them were legit reasons. Other reasons were just like, you know, kind of a, an excuse. But I never, I was never really fighting to stay. I, I think that's the best way of putting it. It's like, well, I got to move. I got to go somewhere. Uh, but I was never trying to find stability within my life. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from my childhood. We were moving a lot for for a variety of reasons. You know, my mother was by herself trying to take care of two kids. And while she was getting child support, I want to say it was probably $50, you know, uh, a week or something like that in child support, which is, you know, it doesn't really do anything for us. Um, And my father never cared about our situation. Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know if he knew that we were going through that situation. Um, But I was too young to even to know about that. But I think I think if he was involved, it would be obvious that we were staying in a hotel, you know. Uh, he, it would be obvious, like, we we were moving around and we we're going from state to state or town to town. So, hmm. you know, I think my situation is on the, uh, on the, just the, I would say, more normal side where you feel confused, you're not sure which direction you're going. Um you know, maybe you struggle in school, um, but there's the other side, the extreme side of being uh, violent or lashing out at people. I never went in that direction. Um, I I was always um, I was always quiet. I did what I was supposed to do for the most part, but I did struggle. I struggled in school, especially in high school. Um, you know, I don't think I'm a dumb person, but I, I would say. Uh, in high school, I, I had uh, issues with like a dyslexia, or at least I had symptoms of dyslexia, um, and that was definitely a hindrance. But it was it was undiagnosed; it was it wasn't caught on to, um, and I almost didn't graduate from high school because of it, uh, and, and because of other issues that were happening with me. So there were there were definitely hurdles that I had to go through just to even make it into adulthood. Um, or the, the later years of my of the teenage years, um, so I would say that's that's mostly my story, even before entering adulthood. And in your twenties, where, where did you end up gravitating to uh, build worth, self worth, and value in the world? What did you end up doing? Um, so I, I went to tech school. I, I work in IT. I went to tech school, but I actually didn't get to start working in, in IT until like my mid twenties. Um, you know, I I had an opportunity and I, I was able to to do something with it. Uh, it didn't it didn't turn into what it is today, but I was able to do something with it. But 
as far as validation goes, I, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, you know, what, what tends to happen is a lot of us men look for women as our validation. Um, and and I, I've seen it for certain people throughout my life or people that I've met where they're onto the next, onto the next. And it seems like their personal wealth is being translated into uh, not self-worth, but what uh, what um, what a woman believes of them or their acceptance of a woman, you know, uh, not even necessarily for relationship, just uh, basically sex. Um, so if I can have sex with this woman, that means I'm being accepted. And so now that I'm accepted, I can feel good about myself. Look at me, I accomplished something. And then you repeat the cycle over and over and over. And for a lot of guys, they get caught up in that and they have children and they didn't intend to have children and they you know it creates more drama and more more issues so that's where the know. drama comes from <laughs> <laughs> you know unfortunately um, was, was promiscuity a, a way of uh shoring up your self-worth for you uh you know i i've had a number of girlfriends but i was never i would i wouldn't consider myself promiscuous you know, for the most part, I was I was with women to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem was that if I'm to look back at myself, I had issues. You know, I was not masculine enough. I was not sure enough, and I was not confident enough in myself. Um, and so, those particular things don't seem like a huge deal, but when it seeps into everyday life or it seeps into certain situations. You know, it makes a difference. And, you know, I think I think every relationship where you, you break up with someone, everybody has their role in the breakup. You know, something went wrong because maybe one person more so than the other, but you have your part. And so I've accepted my part in previous relationships where they, they went south. And, and I say it stems a lot from the lack of masculinity, the lack of understanding masculinity and and how beneficial it is for me and how hmm. um, I lack the confidence. You know, I, I had legitimately, I had low self-esteem at, at periods of time in my life. You know, I've had moments of feeling suicidal, being depressed. So all of these things, uh, if I was more masculine, if I was more sure of myself, it really wouldn't exist. <laughs> You say the word masculine, and then you say the word confidence. Is that the same? Is it just the same word? Is it a synonym? What What do you mean by masculinity? What is that? So when I say masculinity, I'm talking about traits. Uh, you know, traits of masculinity. Um, at least this is this is how I refer to it. So there are traits of masculinity that I refer to, like being confident, like being. Um, it's kind of one and the same: confident or at least sure of yourself. Um, to take roles of leadership, um, to be balanced. I think one of the one of the misconceptions about masculinity is that masculinity is extreme. So, like uh, the feminists like to say, uh, you know, when this bad action by a man is has occurred, it's because of masculinity. But I would argue that that's not what real masculinity looks like. You know. In my opinion, I can only base. I think people have certain certain viewpoints. So but generally speaking, there's like there's confidence, yeah. confidence, confidence, and then there's this gray area, and then there's chauvinism, chauvinism, chauvinism. Exactly. So, so and, kind of, that's one of the exactly, and that's that's where the masculine meters, masculine meters. Right, 
Right. And the key word is balance. You know, um, you can be chauvinistic at times, but there's a balance between it. And you can obviously still be masculine and have moments of depression. You know, if someone if someone you love passes away, it's normal to feel depressed. It's normal to feel down. Uh, that's okay. But I'm talking about like on a, in a general uh, a general scale and, and how you carry yourself throughout your life. Just finding that balance in between. Um, you know, there are times where I can be very confident because I, I am sure of this. And maybe it could be misinterpreted as me being chauvinistic. Um, but I think that's a, a quick, you know, casting to the side uh, and just to try to, like, degrade people. Um, but I always go back to one of the things that I realized years ago was the key to my life and the key to most people's lives and happiness is balance. It doesn't matter what it is. If you find a balance in between, it's it's almost like a yin and yang. You know, you have to find a balance between the two. Um, and so that's masculinity to me is one and the same as far as finding a balance between the two, being chauvinist and being, uh, you know, depressed, you know, because you're not confident or something of that nature. Um, so. I personally believe that I found a balance in my my life where I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I'm not depressed. I'm pretty confident. I'm I'm rarely nervous. You know, uh, yeah, I used to have social anxiety, and I don't have that anymore. Um, and a lot of it has to do with my mindset. And 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 I even talk about feeling like a victim to depression, feeling like a victim to anxiety. You know, so while the book mm -hmm. talks about black victimhood i'm also talking about victimhood in general how people victimize themselves how a lot of a lot of issues that people have is because they don't believe in themselves and then they wallow in it as a victim of a particular issue and one thing that's really worrying is when i see the far left looking for victim points and they're taking people who have legitimate problems who who are chronically depressed and using that as a currency or saying I have bipolar and using that as a currency, you put it in your Twitter bio that I have a mental disorder. And so no one ever tries to get better and they discourage taking medicine or discourage therapy or discourage any type of changing so you can be more balanced in your life and they're promoting unhealthy behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your breaking point? You're like, I need to be a man now. What, what brought you to that change? Um, there, you know, there were definitely certain certain points in my life where I made certain changes. So I had my son uh, at a relatively young age. Um, How were you? I was uh, 21. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's while I'm an adult, it's still... Well, like, he can probably beat you up now, can he? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will admit that he is taller than me. Uh, he's he's probably about six foot, and he he's not even sixteen yet. So he's he's a big kid. But um, you know, that that situation had me grow up and try to figure things out. I became less selfish and and selfless, trying to like I, I put myself in a position where I was making risks to try to earn more money or try to learn certain things. You know, I was trying to make certain moves for my son you know it was to help me but it was also for my son but it was it was a struggle to do such things and i think it's a struggle for a lot of 
you know, young men in their 20s. But it's even added pressure when you have a child to take care of. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say another another big push was when my son started to to enter in his teenage years. Um, I would say my social anxiety issues started going away maybe like three or four years ago now. Um, so he he got them all? <laughs> like, all right, dude, you, you, you can have eternal puberty. I'm done with it. <laughs> right. Um, no, but, but I, what, I, what I started realizing as he got older is how he looks at me. And and it was it's it's something that's strange. Like someone someone would tell me, like you know your son watches you. And I never really noticed that, and I wasn't that kid who grew up with a father to see how a child looks at his father. So that really impacted me as far as what behavior am I displaying, um, how am I approaching the world, what am I what am I teaching him inadvertently, and so. There were a lot of things that I wanted to do for personal development so I can be like a, a reflection for him to, to kind of have an example of. And if I'm a failure, then I'm showing him an example of a failure. And I don't want to do that for him because I do love him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's one of those things where my son was a, a big part of me trying to constantly move forward. And, and even though I, I definitely had hurdles, I wanted to be something better than what I actually was. Um, and so that that was definitely like a huge push. And especially when he started entering or getting close to entering the teenage years, you know, he's pretty self-sufficient. Uh, you know, he's watching me. His mannerisms are like mine. He, you know, all these different things. And I, and I realized like how important it is to have real discussion with him, to have honesty with him, to show him I try not to be too biased with him, uh, but I tell him all the time, it's okay to question things and it's okay for him to question me. I don't know everything and he may think I'm a genius or whatever, but still question me because I could absolutely be wrong. And and a lot of what I write about in this book is just the idea of questioning anything and everything. And we should be allowed to question things. Uh, you know, the introduction is literally called questions where I ask a, a list of questions that I've always asked myself, or you know, I wondered, but not to necessarily anyone. Just general questions about the world around me, and I think what I'm seeing a lot of times is people accepting information and never questioning information. Mm-hmm. I'm. I do not want to sound like I'm speaking in general generalities one two about an entire you know subgroup of americans but i'm just mm-hmm. running this simulation in the back of my mind about well if there's a lack of fathers in a community we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. the black community right now but just in a community uh, there's a lack of fathers in the home then there's a lot of criminality or, or i guess just men are in the periphery mm-hmm. so then you have the children and then the mothers and probably a network of, of women kind of sustaining the, the home life. How do you, you get men back into that, into that culture? Like how do you reintegrate the male and the female in that structure? Cause I could see how it, 
could even be really difficult for a lone man in that culture to try to get back into being a father in the home because of the way that everything else is structured, um, just in the culture and the probably the w- certain characteristics that the women in that culture would have to adopt would make them difficult for men to get along with because they would have to be uh, really strong and kind of actually adopt a lot of the masculine roles. And then the man and the woman don't have this kind of loose prefabricated set of stereotypes to kind of negotiate with because it's kind of all out of whack. I just, I'm running that simulation in my head and I don't know how you would go about um, kind of figuring out how to reintegrate the male and the female in, in the culture. So, to kind of answer your question, I think uh, every every problem starts with acknowledging that there is a problem. And that's what I'm attempting to do within this book. I think a lot of times when we talk about the missing fathers in a lot of black homes, it becomes a talking point and no one goes any further. Um, or it becomes, uh, you know, oh, you know, that's what all conservatives say or something like that. It gets very dismissed. And so what I wanted to do is talk about it, but talk about it with my story, because it puts a human frame on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and talk about how, you know, keeping the separation of the father and the and the mother is extremely detrimental for a for a multitude of reasons. And I think what happens a lot of times is we we bring up that there's a problem and we stop there. We don't say why it's a problem. It, it, you know, we just assume that everybody understands why it's a problem or that everyone is going to take the time to research to understand why it's a problem. But I know from personal experience as to why it's a problem. And so I think a lot of times, you know, I, I try to mix certain concepts together. Um, you know, for example, I talk about authority and policing uh, is at one of the chapters because I, mm. I want people to understand the role of authority. Yeah. Uh, within the home and how men tend to be, this is traditionally speaking, more of a, a of a uh, balance and better authority figure within the home. And and it's it's not to say that women are not respected as an authority figure, but the it, there's something about it, and I and I've seen it in all different types of scenarios, um, and I and I've heard from other people, you know. For example, if you take a childcare center and they have one man there and the rest are women, I've heard how the kids stop what they're doing. They listen to everything he says. No, you know, there's I've had something that experience about it. myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and no one no one told these kids to be misogynists or anything like that. There is something natural about it. There's something natural about a male authority that's important. There's a limit to it, uh, and. I, I, if we're if we're speaking of stereotypes, you know, there's this uh, very ancient uh, kind of Jewish tradition, or it's a uh, mystical tradition, where they mm-hmm. put a lot of uh, symbolical weight in these two pillars: mercy and severity. And and mercy is kind of the more feminine aspect; severity is the more masculine aspect. But both together bring you justice. Both together yes. bring you balance. And and there's no way that men and women could get along if they both didn't have those aspects themselves but it just it tends to in in a good pair bond it tends to kind of 
polarize out where they can trust each other to the woman is better at caring. Uh, and I see that in my life. I, my care ends at a certain point. My significant other's care can keep on going. I just like I run out of care, you know, uh, right. my severity or my, my needing to set limits is a little bit more strict than hers. And then we kind of balance each other out. I, right. you know, there's a lot of people are one of our, revolutions or one of our rebellions in our culture is against any sort of stereotype. So you always have to say, not everybody's like this. Every, every right. individual is a mixture, yada, yada, yada. But how do you take those concepts? Well, how do you, how do you think that you yourself adapt, adopted those concepts? And how do you think that that would scale to, to your community? And I guess it would have to be if we're going to re reverse engineer this, we would have to take mm -hmm. the media narrative and then start to tell a counter narrative about that. Is that, right. is that the proper place? And what are the components of that counter narrative, that black victor narrative? So, you know, you make up a good point when you talk about the media. There, there's different forms of media. I think a lot of times when we say media, we think like CNN, MSNBC, but, you know, there's... there's <laughs> exactly. There's... Uh, there's the black media, there's uh, black television shows, you know, I hear a lot of times, and I was, I was pretty young, but I hear a lot of times uh, people talk about the Cosby show and how impactful it was to show a strong nuclear family of uh, professional black people and how that kind of shifted the idea of what people think they know about black people or what black people are capable of in America. Um, rather than just being entertainers or rather uh, than being maybe criminals or something like that. You know, I talk about in the book how, you know, statistically, most white people don't live around black people. Uh, people usually live with people that they know of their particular culture. So it's understandable when someone lives in a maybe more rural area or maybe a state that is not very populated um, when it comes to having black people. And so maybe you go to school, like I've been that person. I went to a school where I was one of three black people. And that's, you know, so it's a very limited, uh, it's a very limited exposure that I think a lot of people have. And so when they're curious about something, they can only base it off of the information that they're supplied. And if the information that they're supplied is either that we are, you know, criminals or we're victims or or something negative that that plays a role in into the general narrative. But mm -hmm. uh, to kind of go back to black uh, when it comes to the black narrative and how do you change that? Really, it has to do with either changing the media or completely ignoring the media narrative. And so I think the easiest first step is to question that question the narrative, you know, uh, to question why these t particular TV shows exist that show black people in such a negative light uh, or, or in such an ignorant manner. Why is that elevated to a particular level? But the positive things are just cast aside or don't exist. So, such you know, is, I talk what, what, what are you what are you thinking about here? Well, I mean, for example, I can I can go through a number of television shows that show black people who are committing crimes, who are being murdered, uh, uh, who are getting into fights, you know, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not a very good look. And mm -hmm. on top of that, 
that could be the literally the only thing I watch. That is not, there's no balance in between that. You know, I'm not even saying that you should get rid of those things because those things are reality. But what I'm saying is it doesn't feel like to me that there's a balance on the other end. Hmm. Um, so the, the amount of positive shows that show black people in a good light, they exist. You know, like for example, Blackish. Blackish is a positive show that shows a positive uh, viewpoint for What's a black about? family. I haven't heard of that. Uh, that. What's what channel is that on? That's on ABC, I believe. I'm not a big fan of it, but I know okay. it exists. Okay. You know? <laughs> All right. Like um, kind of sitcom style. Kind yeah, of? exactly. It's a sitcom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those TV shows exist. However, those TV shows typically don't last long these days, and and the ones that gain all the notoriety, all the popularity, and who we promote really are on the other side, the ignorant culture, the Cardi B's of the world. You know, they get promoted. Okay, that, okay. that's kind of what you're talking about then. I guess yeah. uh, stereotypically criminalizing, sexualizing yes. uh, hip-hop culture. And I know there's much more than that, but just kind of the stereotypical lot of uh, violence and sex. That's right, kind of the right. Stuff that plays. Okay, yeah. Right, and and I think that there, to me, and this is all my opinion. To me, there feels like a promotion of ignorant culture, and and that is something that to me is kind of disturbing, you know. Yeah, I, see, th- this is the problem with that particular reading. It's that in any given media landscape the lowest common denominator is going to get the most play because it's what most people can connect with and sex and the excitement of running around with a gun um you know or whatever being being a badass let's say that that is compelling to the most amount of people so it kind of it kind of it plays it plays out in a way that there is this kind of feedback loop where it does sell because so many people can get into it but then it replicates it just in the cardi b uh, let's just say cardi b it replicates this image of uh kind of a very specific form of female empowerment uh, that mm. is uh, kind of a succubus in, in nature and uh, reducing everything into a transaction, a sexual transaction kind of thing. I, you yeah. know, if we want to uh, criticize it negatively, I'm sure there's positives in there too. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what gets projected. And then it gets projected in the minds of 11, 12, 13 year olds. And then that perpetuates. Mm-hmm. Right, and you and and you know what you're correct because like I I know people who watch uh, UK TV shows and they have trashy TV shows with the lower class doing trashy things. It, trashy so, is just it, everybody can watch it. It it actually right. takes a lot more work to to get off aesthetically speaking on more refined uh, behaviors, uh, even mm-hmm. just behaviors. Not not to say anything about uh, the art itself has to be complex, but the behaviors themselves, the subtlety of a show, uh, you know, is going to, the more subtle a show becomes, the, it's going to lose more and more people unless you can right. kind of catch them with a bunch of different kind of attentive, attentive tricks and stuff. Now here's, here's the tricky part. The tricky part is if we go back to, uh, lost girls and lost boys who, who may be looking for particular influences in life or examples, you know, if you are someone who is black and you're surrounded by black people um, and you look at your the media 
and overwhelmingly the message coming from the black media is of a negative message, is of a, if you are a woman, you should dress this way, act this way, talk this way, behave this way. And if you're a young man, you should do the same thing or in a, in, in a male, uh, you know, ignorant fashion, then where is your influence to do otherwise? It becomes a very tricky thing to, to overcome. You know, it's, it's very easy for me to look at the people around me and mimic what they're doing, even if they're doing wrong. Yeah. But if, if you have a solid home foundation, it doesn't matter necessarily what's going on around you. You'll do what's necessary to survive, but you know what's real and what's false. You know what's right and wrong. So, you know, there's something to be said about the original home structure and who are your influences. You know, so for example, my son, if he was really into hip hop, he could watch hip hop, he could listen to it, but he would never behave and act out those particular things because he's, for years, we have modeled a particular behavior within the home. And so that the likeliness of that happening are far less. Not saying it's impossible, but just saying that that model at home and who are his true influences really matter. And so that that music or that that media that he's watching just becomes entertainment. You know, I can I can watch it because I understand and it, be, it can become entertainment for me. But me personally, I don't like watching it because I think too deeply into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you end up watching then? Uh, you know, these days I, I watch a lot of YouTube uh, yeah. and, I, and I, you know, that's that's just me or I watch documentaries. But that's my nerdy side, um, you know, but. The, the the other type of media I, I tend not to watch um, anymore, I would say. So I used to watch First 48 for one reason, but it became incredibly depressing to watch. What's because... First 48? I'm sorry. I, oh, I no, it's okay. That. So the First 48 is a TV show that's on A&E. It basically highlights how after a murder, the most important time is the first 48 hours after the murder to solve okay. it. Um, I thought it was like a top top forty eight uh, songs <laughs> hit list band. I don't know jam. Or something. No, okay. it's a murder show, <laughs> right? And and even though it's a murder show, overwhelmingly the people who are on it and being killed are black. And so are the are the detectives black? The the solvers sometimes. The oh, okay. Sometimes sometimes they're black. Sometimes Rotating. they're white. It depends. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they go to different cities or across the country. But if you think Wait, about it, is this like a reality kind of based? Yeah. Real, is, okay. So it's not produced. I, I, it is produced. I yeah. don't know to what extent. Okay. But it is about real cases unfolding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you're watching. Okay. You're watching like these real scenarios. That's why it's depressing to me. If it was yeah. fictional, I would just be like whatever. But, um, you know, the fact that a TV production can go to a police department and sit there in a matter of days, have a show, it's kind of depressing when you think about it. Um, well, and that's how frequent it's happening. Life happens and there's millions of people. So it happens fast a lot somewhere, you know? Yeah. I, yeah, but focusing on that and concentrating on that is, is heavy stuff. Yeah. So, okay, so we're talking about like media narratives and representation levels, and that will change. Uh, actually, mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, and it's top down 
I disagree with this, so I'd like your opinion on this. Uh, there's this intersectionality, kind of uh, anti-stereotyping uh, procedures that are being implemented across Hollywood and all major networks, where they're saying, okay, well, black people, brown people can't be the bad guy, the white, the white guy is going to be the bad guy now, and the, you know, the queer people we have to have, and all these, they're, they're doing it all metrically. They're gonna, we're going to reverse all <laughs> these things and, and kind of paint by numbers, equality by numbers, diversity, inclusion, and equity for Forever by these numbers and stuff like that. There's that. There's the work that is happening to try to write what you're pointing out on that level. But a more pernicious form of narrative is this activist-centered victimology that comes mm-hmm. descends from the university and then is implanted in the university. And now is being implanted in every level of the education system where right. black individuals and this narrative that you started out speaking about was alive and well at my college, the Evergreen State College, where you had one professor saying that black people are getting shot every 20 minutes in America. We are not free as LGBT people um, because we are among the black people who are killed every 28 minutes by a cop or some fool who thinks he can be. There's this narrative that these black professors can't even step out of their door without getting shot. You know, that's how (laughs) afraid they are. And they're pushing that narrative. And you're like, well, it's not true. But yeah, two black guys did get shot because they ran after a cop with their skateboards above their head, intending to beat the cop. And you're not supposed to do that. What do you think is going to happen? You know, but the, the, the lopsidedness of that particular narrative has been around before George Floyd. When did you first start seeing that, noticing that, that uh, activistic, uh, that particular form of activism, uh, talking about the black community, black, black lives? And what was your first kind of tentative reaction to that when you first came across it? So, um, you know, I would say the, the original black activists really were the, you know, the Al Sharptons and Jesse Jacksons of the world. They just did it in a different way. They didn't use intersectionality. Um, and so I was all, that, uh, yeah. could you position those to Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, just for continuum's sake, in the mm-hmm. civil rights? So th- we have Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and probably we have to go way back to Dubois and... Uh, the, the other Booker guy, T. Douglas and Booker T. Yeah, way back there, mm-hmm. but we can just start in the '60s. So you have you have Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And then you have so where did uh, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton kind of pick up that? Because they are descended, right? They're kind of a part of the continuum. In some ways, like Jesse Jackson uh, worked alongside Martin Luther King, so we know there's an association there. Yeah, Al Sharpton, in my opinion, is just an opportunist. Uh, okay. You know. That's that's a different story, but actually, um, I'll put it in in this particular framework. Uh, and and one of the things I I talk about how there is this constant need for there to be some sort of black leadership, when there is no other demographic in the United States that has a racial leader. Um, you know, there may be people who are influential who happen to look a particular way, but yeah. the idea that we need to have a black leader or or black leadership uh, that's these are words that are constantly thrown around i think a lot of it stems from the civil rights era and and it's there's legitimate reason to understand how 
uh, you know, you can put someone like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X on a particular pedestal because they were doing certain things. They were acting as leaders, but they were acting as leaders for a very particular cause. Um, You know, let's just look more so at Martin Luther King, because I feel like his message was more was resonating more with people, at least at least how we look at it today and what what ended up turning out. His his advocacy, his messaging, uh, nonviolent protests, um, and what it turned into the the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. So, in in many ways, his strategy had won because they got the biggest, one of the largest governments in the world, to change their stance on how they govern and how they treat a particular demographic of people. That is a win for everybody, not just black people. The problem was that anytime you take down, uh, you know, the big bad monster, you know, you gain some sort of power. So there, there became a power within leadership, power within um, advocacy, power in, with activism. And mm-hmm. you know, I was talking to a friend who, uh, to kind of pivot a little bit, in Germany, when they started having all these refugees coming in from the Middle East and Northern Africa. What started happening was all these people started popping up and helping and say, yes, we want to give you this, give you supplies. Lawyers started helping people with their, you know, uh, to become refugees in Germany. What she explained was that it became an industry. And once an industry is created, it's really tough to get rid of it. It's the same thing with the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement turned into an industry. It turned into a grievance industry. And so the the Jesse Jacksons, the Al Sharptons, all they did was continue the industry. Yeah. The war, the war was the war for all all intents and purposes had been won. You know, you got the government to change what they're doing, and you started waking up white people to uh, what was going on for the treatment of of other American citizens. These are all very positive things. The problem is that you created an industry, and you created a grievance industry that is perpetually moving and perpetually putting black people back in a victimized situation. You know, so it's like, uh, it, if it happened before, it can happen again. It's that constant reminder. It's almost like a threat. Um, so it's a, order- it's a powerful it's a powerful narrative. I was thinking yeah. when you brought up the concept of black leadership and always naming black leadership, I went back to the Old Testament and Israel going out of Egypt. So you have this great migration out of, you know, from slavery out of Egypt and then you have Moses leading them and then you get to Israel, you get to the promised land and they always they're always looking for a king. They need a king. There's this uh, desire for just that you you call it an industry but it's an institution it becomes institutionalized there's also a narrative component breaking that narrative component is not going to be possible unless it just decays from the inside out and it's constantly mm-hmm. attracting the goodwill of people and bad actors to it and there's right. not a lot of there's it's it's really difficult to regulate the bad actors in it because it has it is shrouded in such virtue because it is mm-hmm. one of the landmarks of american pr- progress like that civil rights movement and the outcome of that and the the beneficial effects that that aren't completed yet but they're still going on because of that is such a huge win 
for humanity, mm-hmm. for liberalism, for the U.S. Constitution, for for Western democracy, for all these things. It has such huge implications, and it and it harkens back to such a huge you know stain on the country, a sin that goes to the heart of America that you can't right. get away from historically without denying the the history of America. But because there's so much value in that, it's so difficult to actually to audit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. what people are going to use that for, you know? And so CRT, critical race theory, Kendi's uh, anti-racism, which is just racism with a couple extra loops to it. And then Robin <laughs> D'Angelo's white fragility, which is this really twisted white saviorism are all yeah. kind of operating in the shadow of this kind of decrepit, uh, revitalized uh, zombie of a civil rights movement, you know, this Frankenstein right of it. I don't know how you break that it, without extreme pain. Without extreme pain. Possibly. Well, to, just to go back a little bit, the reason yeah, I call it an industry... Went off there, there. No, it's okay. Uh, the reason I call it an industry is because, I mean, if you look, there's money to be made. You know, there are corporations that are profiting off of it. So it, billions it becomes... and billions of dollars. Yeah. Billions of dollars that are, that are, that are going off the the uh, pain of, of historical oppression, it's essentially. Because the oppression that they're talking about today is, is micro very uh, micro. It's very singular, and it's very nuanced. The, these aren't overt actions that are happening that they're, that they're highlighting. And if it was overt, it's a very you know, isolated incident. It, it's, mm. not, it's not even a representation of anything. There is no law that, on the books, that separates me and you as far as how we're being treated. I mean, that's that's very fair to say. And so that's the starting point. So it's it's how we enforce the laws. If you want to argue those particular things, and we can we can argue that. Um, but we need to be nuanced about it. You know, it's it's the people who say, well, there's a disproportionate amount of black men who are in jail. Hence, there's racism and how we treat black men. But my rebuttal is, so are you saying that overwhelmingly these black men are innocent? Because that's a huge travesty. But if they're not innocent, which we can make that assumption that the vast majority of people who are locked up in jail are not innocent, then tell me where the problem lies. So we're locking up criminals. And it doesn't matter what they look like. So it's that it's that when someone sees an imbalance, they automatically jump to the conclusion of racism and they ignore everything else. They ignore common sense. They ignore possible goodwill and other people. Um, it, it becomes this whole, and that's where, that's where I take it. Anytime I hear someone say systemic racism, I immediately just ignore them because to me that just says, well, you just looked at one thing, made a conclusion and you didn't go any further. Okay. But that is the dominant narrative. And if you're going to challenge the dominant narrative, how do you reach people who think that way? Well, that's where it is right now. How do you reach out to the the, the people involved in this issue, both black and white and uh, whatever color, uh, you know, that are beholden to that way of thinking, that systemic way of thinking? How do you reach them? How do you break that? How do you challenge that? How do you reverse that? And how do you supplement it with something better? 
you know, it, it really just depends on what level that they're at. So, for example, I say, uh, maybe I sound flippant by saying I ignore those people. What I, what I mean by that is, if I'm watching television and Campbell Soup is saying systemic racism, or EA Sports <laughs> is talking about systemic racism, like, I'm, I'm just completely they ignoring They probably it. do. It, it, is there <laughs> Campbell Soup? I'm sure there's a Campbell Soup. If not right. already in the works, then. It, it, it's just completely yeah. ridiculous to me. Yeah. My, my the way I wrote my book is is for what the average American because I think a lot of times the narrative always goes to the extremists, and the extremists may change. We we me and you have known of people who were extremists, and they were able to come out of it because maybe they accidentally got exposed to something that they didn't know. But that happening, it happens on a very odd situation. What I'm more. Um, what I'm more passionate about is keeping people in the center. It's to not have them go into the extremists. And I, I don't think we do enough of that. We're so focused on the people who are on the far left, who believe in critical race theory, and how do we drag them back out? Okay. They're going to come out when, when because uh, I feel like this. If there's conflicting information, then eventually that conflicting information is going to reach you and you're like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And then they're going to come out of it. What I want to do is highlight the people who are somewhere in the middle, who see what's going on, who are tempted to go towards the extreme because the extreme appears to be the narrative. But in my opinion, the vast majority of Americans are very middle of the road, whether they be you know, uh, right-leaning conservative or left-leaning liberal. And they're somewhere in the middle and they're looking at the crazy people who are dominating their television sets, who are dominating the internet, and they're not sure which way to go. They're not sure if they should go more towards the extremists on either side. And, and I think there, sh there should be more effort in keeping people there. I think there is a false narrative that everyone's an extremist, especially for like, for someone like myself who watches culture war stuff, you know, you start to think <laughs> that everyone is on some far side and you lose perspective. Yeah. But when you get out of your house and you leave your computer and you talk to people, the vast majority of people, they don't know what critical race theory is. They don't they don't care about that. They're just going to work and they just want to keep, you know, they want to provide for their families They're That's the average person. And so I think it's far more important to keep those people where they're at and say, hey, I know you, on your way to work, you're hearing about systemic racism. Let's talk about this. Here, read this and understand that you don't want to mess with that. And they will stay where they're at. So yeah. I, I don't think the world is as extreme, or at least I don't want to say world, but America is as extreme as we like to think that it is. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times... Um, Someone like myself or yourself, you're in the midst of it, you talk about it, you're interested in it, and it feels that way. Um, but I think a lot of institutions are the extremists these days. You know, you look at the Oscars. The Oscars is oh, just God. I, I didn't want to. Did you did you look at them? I didn't. I just I looked I, away. No, I haven't watched it in, in well, okay. I, it's not like I really watch it in general, but um, just the idea of the Oscars and them getting on a pedestal and talking about how, yeah. you know, how they're advocates for this and that. Yeah. It, it yeah, we can get it. That can be a whole other well, discussion, but. Yeah, you, you uh, well, I mean, since George Floyd, it went corporate. 
Yes. Uh, this this rebooted uh, civil rights 2.0 sifted through a bunch of intersectional value structures went corporate and you go on netflix and there's a bar of black stories you're like what are those black stories and you try to see like is there a mix or is it just kind of one black story um but there for a while there they were really shoving it down my throat and i'm like ah don't do that but then i i realized that actually i have a playlist called black voices because i just collected all my black interviews (laughs) so i did the same thing um but with regards to just out of curiosity, uh, from one white man to a black man, what mm-hmm. is your personal uh, experience of race in America? How did you come to terms with it, uh, and wh- where is it now to you? Like racism uh, towards you in your life, and then w- what's your relationship to it, and what do you think? What is it right now in America? So um, you know, I talk about in the book the first time I was called a. N- um oh it, I got yeah. I can't you can say it and yeah. I can't but the <laughs> algorithm doesn't know who's what in this situation they haven't been able to read race yet they want to though very badly the first time I was called the n-word okay um I was uh I was single digit I was playing basketball uh, across the street my neighbor who was white and um, I don't remember exactly what triggered it, but he called me it. And it was very confusing, and I didn't fully understand. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, knew, I knew of the word or, or somewhat of the context, but uh, it was kind of confusing to me because uh, I was very young. But, you know, there, there were certain times in my life where I felt uncomfortable in certain places. Um, you know, like when I, you I, went to the all white, almost all-white school, how did you feel? What did you feel like you stuck out or did you, how did you adapt to that situation? To be honest with you, I had friends, I had friends of, uh, you know, who were white and that, that's the thing. Um, for someone like myself, cause I think a lot of people live in one area and they stay in the area for the majority of their life. You know, one of the positive things about moving around is that you see all different types of people. Uh, you live in different areas. So I've lived in five different States in my life. And I've been around majority white people. Um, I've lived in mixed na- mixed neighborhoods. Uh, like I said, at that school where I was one of the, I think it was like three black kids that was in the entire school. So I've, I've been on all the different extremes or all, all the different sides. And my level of treatment has been far more respectful. Um, I, I really haven't faced anything that was so damaging that I need to, you know, complain about. Uh, I would say, it, I would say it was far more positive in my life, and I've met so many good people who were white, so many good people who were Hispanic or and, and black. I've met just overwhelmingly good people, and it didn't really matter to me what they looked like as long as their character was good, and. That's something that that I always felt when I was a kid. I just I, I wonder if you can describe how that is how you ended up. What in your life caused you to evaluate people according to how they behaved rather than what group they were in? I guess okay. part of that is moving around. That, that I have that background too. So you have to kind of just assess who people are, not by their affiliations but by their character 
So one one thing I'll tell you, at a very young age, I won't say who, but someone told me you can't trust white people. So now at that point, I'm saying, okay, so I can't trust white people. Was it Al Sharpton? (laughs) No, it was someone who was who was close to me. Um, But I remember like, hey, well, this person that we know is black did something that was bad. Um, Like, logically, that doesn't make sense. Why should I trust them by default because they are black when they did something negative towards it? And so it was, I guess I've been mostly logical throughout my life, of uh, just kind of like putting the pieces together. Um, but that was mm. something, especially when someone puts it out there and says, don't do this because of this reason, and you kind of question it a little bit, um, it kind of falls flat in its face. You know, because mm. if I'm surrounded by nothing but white people, and all of them treat me respectfully. And maybe some, some people would say, well, that's how they're treating you to your face, but you should hear what they say behind closed doors. Well, all I care about is how they treat me. <laughs> like what they say behind closed doors, I really don't care. That's their problem. But as far as what I see, they're nice to me. They allow me in their home. They, you know, they treat me like they're their relative, all these different things. So why, why should I even care what they say behind closed doors, per se. What about the opposite form of racism, of being coddled, or uh, have you ever felt that? No, and and you know what? That's something that's new. So the the coddling and the pitying, that's something that I'm I'm very like in tune to, like how people are are viewing black people. So I never really felt that when I was when I was younger. And, and I have people who who I felt were genuine. I think that's the best way of putting it. People who, who felt genuine, who, uh, you know, there's the idea that you have someone who's your uh, the token, token black person and they just want to, like, highlight you as the one black person that they know. But uh, that was very few and far in between. Uh, that happened to me, you know, a couple of times. But for the most part, I just didn't gravitate towards those people because I didn't like that feeling. I gravitated yeah. towards gravitated towards the other people who liked me for who I was. And, and that's, that's how you do things in life. But that even that even that perspective, that's how you treat people just in general, like, it it really doesn't matter. You know, you could find someone who's a white guy, who you don't like at all, because he treats you in a particular way. It really doesn't matter. You go towards people who have a certain level of character. And so that's that's kind of always been my my viewpoint Guiding on it. Principle, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so yeah, that that mass victimhood and then victimizing both from the very beneficent white people who are condescending to the black people to help them out to lift them up and i i'm straw manning it um but i have seen a very big push over the last year and you said that when george floyd happened that was your impetus so before that what were you wanting to write a book about it before you found that to write what was the what was going on why were you wanting to write well the reason i i wanted to write goes back to my son um okay like a, uh, when he started entering his teenage years, I really started thinking about certain things. Uh, one of the things that came into mind was legacy. And so, you know, we view our children as our legacy and passed on. But I wanted to leave something behind for him. And I thought a book, 
would be something to leave behind for him. The problem was I had no idea what to write about. Uh, you know, one of the topics, I thought I could write a book about questions. It sounds like a terrible book, not even to think about it, but um, I was able to to do I'm, something. I'm running, a, I'm running a YouTube channel based on questions, so I know it works <laughs> as an interviewer, but I don't know. <laughs> um, right, and it, it may work on in, in certain formats, but... Yeah. Maybe maybe it would have been a good book, but I I didn't wait, have wait, the structure wait, for it. Sorry, allow, thank you for allowing me to joke with you. Uh, <laughs> I know it, it kind of violates certain forms of interviewing, but why That's questions? Right. Why what's up with that? Why what's attractive to you about wanting to make a book of questions or a book about questions? Because um, I think certain times in my life I ask questions that help to alter my life. And then there were times in my life I didn't ask questions that kept me in a in a particular state of mind. Oh. So, for example, my politics have changed um, because I started asking questions, um, and I felt like I started getting politically active when I was about 25 years old. But my politics were based off of what someone else said. You know, when you're new to something, you're like, "Hey, tell me about this." And what I was told explicitly was. The Republicans are racist, and the Democrats are for black people. So I would, if someone gives you that information, you're like, well, I'd be stupid to go towards the Republicans because they don't like me. So why would I advocate for someone that doesn't like mm -hmm. me? Even though I just explained to you how throughout my childhood, I always questioned things, and I, and I looked at people's character and all these different things. But in the realm of politics, my flaw, my fatal flaw was not questioning enough. Um, not questioning mm. the narrative. You know, I believed everything that was coming on MSNBC and CNN. I didn't question. I was just like, wow, that's the news of the day. Get out of here and just kept on moving. And, you know, I don't think I'm a dumb person, but I think you can only make certain decisions in your life based off the information that you're given. And so, uh, you know, two of the flaws was not questioning uh, about politics in general and finding out for myself. And the second was believing the media for what it was. Um, once I started questioning those things, and, and I, I would say the impetus to really start questioning those things had to revolve around Donald Trump. I was not a fan of Donald Trump when he came into office. I wasn't crying in the streets like certain people, but I was like, man, I can't, what's going to happen? But um, it was probably midway through his term when I started having different incidents and meeting certain people where my mind started to change. I write about in the book, one of the biggest ones, there were multiple things that happened, but one of the biggest was uh, I started traveling, um, and mostly throughout Europe, and I met a, um, a guy from Manchester when I was in Madrid, and we just bonded over watching soccer or football, and we kept in touch. And so we would message back and forth, and at one point he told me that he was for Brexit. And I was like, really? Because isn't Brexit for these racist English people who want nothing to do with us? And, and he explained to me that basically the United States would never allow for an outside governing body to tell it what to do. And I'm like, that's a really good point. You know, and it was that, that line of question because I didn't have bad faith in him. I didn't disregard him because he had treated me nothing but with kindness and respect. And he gave me his, his opinion and it was a very good point that he made. And he was actually the one who introduced me to Thomas Sowell. And here I am. Ooh. Yeah. 
here I am in my mid thirties. How come I had never heard of Thomas Sowell? You <laughs> yeah, know, for, right. <laughs> right. You know, especially for 10 years, I consider myself politically active or at least politically aware. So how come I never heard of this guy? And that started sending me down the different, the different areas of kind of questioning things and seeing what the other narrative is. And I started realizing that I was, I was hearing conservative opinion from liberals. And I was never hearing conservative opinion from conservatives. Hmm. And so it, it was a it was a imbalance of a filter that I was that was actually receiving. When I started listening to the Larry Elders, the Candace Owens, the uh, the Thomas Souls, the uh, Dinesh D'Souza's, you know, all these different conservative thinkers, some of them I agree with. Some of them I, I, I agree with certain things and I don't. But I, I now have a new set of ideas to balance with my previous liberal ideas. And so that is why today, you know, I, I'm more conservative leaning, but I don't consider myself a Republican. I consider myself an independent because I want to be able to question everybody. And I have a very large distrust for the government just in general, regardless of party. So, um, you know, that's why I don't default myself by saying I'm a Republican. But I want to be able to question and and I kind of go back to, you know, why questions? Because I think questions are fascinating Um, and questions have changed my life when I started asking them and they kept me in in a very negative part of my life when I stopped asking questions. Hmm. But you couldn't make a book out of it. I'm sure that the book will will come. (laughs) The unexamined life kind of thing. So your book is, uh, we'll we'll link it, but where is it uh, available? Black Victim to Black Victor by Adam Coleman. You can uh, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's on BarnesandNoble.com. Um, I'm currently doing uh, signed copies. Uh, if you're interested in a signed copy, okay. you can go to uh, www.blackvictor2victim.com, and uh, you can find the link to purchase a signed copy for myself. Um, and also, just to, to throw out, I also founded um, a website called uh, Bronx Speak Publishing. So I publish articles that are thought-provoking, um, and I try to encourage other people to speak openly about how they feel about certain things, but do it in like an intelligent manner. Uh, I try to come from a non-extreme side. You know, I'm, I have my biases, but I'm trying to be critical about what I say and how I put it out there. So, um, I, and I try to encourage other people to speak up and and. Uh, and not be worried about getting canceled or anything like that and, and, and express themselves. And that's wrong speak. Yeah. Wrong speak.net. Nice. And, uh, what other projects are you up to then? I guess you're going on a book tour now doing these podcasts. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do as many podcasts as, as yeah. I can get. So, and, um, right now, yeah. Yeah. And, um, Actually, sometime this week, I want to start writing a, a second book. Oh, already a sequel. Yeah. What's What's the glimmer in your eye about that? What's the topic? So, uh, to be blunt, I don't want to be the guy who just talks about black things. But yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in culture, and I'm interested in identity. So, you know, I have a loose framework, but it's going to center it around identity. 
Okay. Like uh, philosophically, or what do you? Okay, all right. Yeah, and it, who are some of your influences on that level? Well, th- this is going to be the fun part. I get to research and, and try and learn a little bit more. Um, and you know, this is very, very new. I like I said, I haven't even started writing, so I don't even know which which way it's going to go. Oh but yeah. it's going to be somewhere revolving around identity. Um, yeah. I don't. It, it can go in in a, a variety of directions. You know the the thing about um, it's just so silly. <laughs> I mean, it's it, race is so powerful, and it's such a big part of our history and our culture. And there's cultures within cultures. There's so much mm-hmm. to talk about that we haven't talked about about all the different varieties of, of black culture, black experience, white white culture, white experience. Um, and then, but at the same time, it's just like. It's just like it's so kind of it's just kind of a box, you know. Like, why are we making so much out of the box? It's probably just cardboard that we've just laminated over, you know. So it's right. just it kind of it just seems more substantial than it actually is. Um, but I really felt I didn't see. I I always forget that I'm talking to somebody of a different identity. I'm I'm talking to a human being. Right. Uh, my my attention can't focus, and then I feel bad when I have to ask about racial questions, but. It is a pertinent thing, and just showing people. I hope that there's value at least in showing people that it doesn't really matter, even though it is an uh, important topic. It doesn't really matter uh, as a human to human conversation. It's just such a insignificant part of our souls, in the very least, if not our personalities. Though our cultures and and then all the racial stuff, there, there's reality to it. Right, and 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 there's a general theme in the book where. I talk about culture and I talk less about race. Like mm-hmm. I have to talk about race because it exists and Americans see race. That's, yeah. that's a thing. But I talk w- way more about culture. Um, and there is, yes, there is a black culture. There is a certain mindset, but I also feel that there is a, a general American culture and how we, we have way more in common than we do different. And um, and just to add, you know, the last nine chapters of my book are solution chapters. So I didn't want it to be a book complaining about black people or something like that or complaining. You know, I wanted to highlight things that are plausible, that are plausible solutions. So, you know, we talked about reunifying the family, but, you know, finding commonality with people, you know, and there's something powerful about seeing people for who they are, not what they are. Um, and and I give you know certain examples of people that I've met who are the polar opposite of myself, but I feel a kinship to, and they're they're some of the biggest cheerleaders of myself. You know, I, I talk about a, a guy named Philip who's in his 70s. He's a white uh, male. He's a veteran, and we have nothing in common from the outside, but we share similar issues as far as growing up without our father. You know, he di- he doesn't even know who his father was. Um, and we bonded over that particular thing and just opened up to each other and started discussing those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he said some things to me that he's never told other people because he felt comfortable enough talking to me about it. And it's that kind of thing that I can't imagine going without because I easily dismissed him as just being some older white guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So 
there is a there's a beauty when it comes to finding people who are completely different than you and finding something out about them not because you know oh you're you're asian let me tell me about asian culture not necessarily that it's like your name is jim tell me about you find something about yourself and then maybe you can learn something about what they believe or their culture or something like that as a byproduct to it um i think there's way too much gravitating towards someone's outward appearance as a marker for who they are rather than that just being i i just happen to be born this way uh, mm -hmm. but my name is adam damn I like that ending. You want to say goodbye to the audience? I can flip <laughs> off my studio lights and we can end the recording. Yes. Um, I want to thank everyone who's supported me so far. You know, I'm an independent publisher and, you know, I'm essentially a nobody. But I think my message that I'm trying to come across is extremely important. It's a unifying message. And all I want to do is help people and try to quiet the extremists and highlight the people who are and the center. Excellent. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Thank you for having me. I'm going to end the recording. I Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.